there's a bit of a reaction to that passage, maybe that you felt within yourself, that's kind of a, what is this guy smoking? I mean, how many people really can say, I love your law. I delight in it. I mean, if to paraphrase that passage, oh, how I love your law, you could say, I just love thinking about it. Each and every day, all the time, I just love the law. Really, is that your reaction? Are you feeling that? Well, of course not. There's something about the law that is just hard to love. And it begs the question, what is this psalmist talking about? Paul will go on to say that the law is good. Somehow, I don't like to see it that way. I mean, really, there's a philosophical reason that trickled down into youth revolts in the 60s that became an outright worldview in the 80s, 90s, and into now. A philosophical worldview that that turned everything upside down when it comes to the issue of authority in preference for expressive individualism, where I get to express myself and and expressing myself, I want to be the guy or the girl who makes my own rules, my own laws. That was deeply ingrained in a philosophical movement that took place about 150, 200 years ago. But many of you are old enough to remember when that finally erupted in the 60s through youth revolts and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Rolling Stones and and uh, there was a massive revolt. I remember the, 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 the song Hair, you know, and, and uh, rules, rules, everywhere there's rules. And we just didn't like rules. Well, why would we? Because at the heart of a law is an external authority from ourselves. And that law represents an external something controlling my life. It's hard to love the law. But that's the culture we live in. But has it possibly crept into our Christianity? We as a church, we talk a lot about the gospel. And we will always talk about a lot about the gospel. And that gospel at its core is about grace. But have we done something? Have we maybe gone too far? Or maybe we haven't gone far enough. Because the psalmist, together with even this passage in Paul, sees the gospel not against the law, not as something in competition to the law, but but as something that would restore us to the law, that would take us through the 60s and the 70s into the post-60s and 70s of the postmodern era and move us back into a pre-modern kind of notion about law. And so that's what we want to look at today. How, if you noticed in the passage in Psalms, the love for the law was seen as synonymous for his love for salvation. How does that fit? Now I warn you that uh, perhaps you have come to our Sunday school, and I hope you're coming to it. It's at a very, very significant uh, class that we're teaching this year on how to understand the relationship between the old and the new. In the sermon series, we're going through Timothy, and, and perhaps a couple of weeks you'll remember that, that uh, I was discussing what, what, was the, what was the situation that prompted the writing of Timothy. And, and clearly, unambiguously, it was, it was the emergence of false prophecy, false elders and teaching elders who were pastoring 
these local congregations within the multi-congregational network of, of a church in Ephesus and around Ephesus. And the two fundamental characteristics of these, which would even go into the third century in one of the major councils and one of the major issues facing Christianity, the two issues were, on the one hand, a kind of Gnostic uh, infatuation with private revelations, continuing prophecy in the manner in which usurped the fixed prophecy that was contained in the prophets and the apostles. So this add-on prophecy where there would be these secret revelations that would lead to speculations and myths Paul will talk about. But then the other problem that Paul relates to is that these people, these prophets, were self-appointed. They had not been ordained through the laying on of hands. We saw that last week uh, in our ordination service, especially as we used Timothy for that, and how important it was that that there's a standard by which we measure those who can be our prophets against the standard of the formal prophets and apostles through that succession principle. But what Paul says here in Timothy is that with these prophets, and I quote, they didn't know what they were talking about, end quote, with respect to how to read and understand the law, the Old Testament law. And that's where we pick up Because Paul now picks up with that issue of how to understand the old and the new, which is what our whole Sunday school class is about. So that's a good advertisement for you. If you missed last time, you can get it on the website. It's right there for you. It's got the PowerPoint with the audio next to it. It'll be worth your doing to catch up. But that leads us to this passage. Now we know, Paul says, contrary to the world, contrary maybe even to your most natural reaction to all of this, he says, but we know that the law is good. And then he says, if one uses it lawfully. So evidently, some thought the law was bad. And this was evidently due to a wrong use of the law. So what does it mean, good and lawful? And what you'll see throughout this passage is that that Paul will, will exhort Timothy to set things straight, that's his purpose in going back to Ephesus. But it never tells you exactly then, when he says, according to sound doctrine, Paul doesn't in this epistle then go into a treatise on what is the sound doctrine. When he talks about the good use or the lawful use of the law, he doesn't here in this passage go into uh, an explanation about that. Now why? Why would he say that, you'd think? Well, remember, he's not writing the letter in a vacuum. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw that Timothy was none other than, quote, my true child in the faith. This was uh, an associate apostle, if you will, with Paul. You remember that he helped write the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, and on it goes. This guy was schooled and trained in the seminary of the apostle Paul. And so he assumes throughout this letter that when he exhorts Timothy to do things, that Timothy has been trained and he understands. So what we'll be doing throughout the whole book here, or this letter, is constantly referring back to those other readings that Timothy was clearly refer, that was clearly uh, familiar with in order to fill in the blanks, as you will. And that's what we're going to do today as well. But let's begin with, with some, some prayer, and then I'm excited to get into this, though I know you're a bit reticent, because we're going to be talking about Mm, the law. Let's pray. So God, we thank you for um, 
well, what we've already worshipped and praised you for, that you are uh, no less holy and good and just by virtue of how you saved us. You didn't deny yourself to save us, but rather you honored yourself and your holiness when you saved us by and according to the law fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would, even now when we come to this sermon by your Holy Spirit, give us hearts to hear and see, no longer fearful of your law, having been set free from its condemnation, therefore restored to your law as we see it continuing in our life unto salvation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's get into it. What, what does it mean to say that there's a right use of the law? Well, the very first thing uh, that you would note if you went back into Paul and his writings, particularly in Romans, etc., is that, the, that, that one of the things that was going bad is that, that the law was intended to preserve the exclusive lordship of God over our conscience. Paul will say this in many different ways. Sometimes he'll relate it directly to God and his holiness being preserved. In other words, we, Paul's going to say, are not uh, put into this world so that we can take anything away from the law of God that reveals God's holiness, nor can we add anything to the law of God that reveals his holiness. But Paul won't just leave it at that. Because here again, you're thinking, that's great. So it's good for God's holiness that we not take anything away from the law or not add anything to it. But I'm still afraid of the law because I'm screwed. God might be good, but I'm screwed. Just the opposite, Paul says. For if you knew your father in heaven, you know there is no law that is not a law of love. A law of love for you and me. A law of love that would therefore be a law in order that we might be further saved and and we'd be more and more flourishing in our lives. And so Paul often talked about the law in the context of the Pharisees. They were those who abused the law. The way they abused it is they would reduce the law to the things that they could do, often adding to the law that which was not a law, that they were doing, and then they would impose that upon everybody else and bind conscience where conscience was not bound. You'll see it all through the Gospels, the way in which they reduced the law. He would say to the Pharisees, you have said, do not do this, do not murder. But if you had thought to read Deuteronomy and all the Old Testament passages about that, you'd understand that that's more than just the worst case scenario of how you don't love your neighbor. To not murder is not to hate, not to feel malice towards. There was an internal dynamic to that. But seeing their self-righteousness, they live to bind people's consciences to the law. And so there's really two things that Paul means here when he says a lawful use. First of all, we don't take away from it, we don't add from it. Acts 20, he taught, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's law. The whole council. That is written to Ephesus. Timothy was standing by his side when he said those words. In 2 Timothy 3, we hear that all scripture is breathed out, not just some of it. And all scripture is profitable, not just some of it. But just the scripture is the key. And so there's all kinds of ways that Paul will attack this issue of taking away from the law or adding to it. 
Some of it is through traditions of people. Let's just call that what's popular. In other words, one of the best ways, in the, in the, in, well, the worst ways, however you want to describe it, but one of the ways in which we tend, all of us, to struggle with this is we will base our willingness to recognize what is a law for my life based on what's popular in whatever group I'm with, what is a consensus with whatever group I'm with. Find myself a group of, quote, Christians who really don't spend much thought about this part of the law, and it makes me feel that, well, that really wasn't an important law, or that's not really a law. In other words, what we've subtly done is we've preferred the traditions or the the what's popular in my world as the definitive law that gets to either extract out of God's written law what it wants in order to be gratified, or we could even add some things to the law that God didn't add to the law. Do you see what the logic there? So think about it for a minute in your own life. Are there, are there certain things that maybe you've heard preached over the years or something that you've heard about what Christianity tells you, but somehow you've just managed to conveniently keep that in a very quiet space over there, hoping that no one really brings it up? That's kind of what I'm talking about here. By traditions of people, uh, a false way, of, of a way that we very conveniently will extract from or take away from the law. But the other, of course, was through private or extra-biblical revelations. This is where we, we listen to our emotions, thinking it, God is speaking to me. This is probably the best way I know to add to the law. Paul talks about this a lot, um, how it is. Uh, where there's this prophesying, this self-prophesying. And those are big words, but what he's really just talking about is, is the way in which we can rationalize something that we really want to be true, and then because we emotionally feel it, think that that is God speaking to us. I've made some of the worst decisions in my life. Because my brain, like yours, is capable of rationalizing just about anything. And then, but it's not God's law yet in my life. It's not until I have an experience that might confirm it. It's not until, I don't know, maybe even in worship, and I was praying last night that God would show me how to do something or be something and or where I should go. And, and then the next day I go to a worship service, and I'm thinking about it, it's in my head, and there's this great experience, and I was reading a hymn, and it says something, and it's kind of like a Chinese proverb. And I go, there it is. I knew God was talking to me. Come on, tell me you hadn't done that or something like it. It's confirmed. God's speaking to me. I'm supposed to do this. I don't have to do this. You see, this is nothing new. This was happening throughout the Old Testament. This was happening all through the New Testament. Uh, that is the way in which we would add to it by our own revelations or by what others would make us feel comfortable adding to it, called traditions of men, or we'd take something away from it, things that we didn't quite like about the law or things that just were inconvenient right now. But underneath it, I want you to hear what's going on. Underneath everything I just said, these two ways of taking away or adding to is this inherent bias. 
that the law is something I've got to manage. This inherent bias, I want you to hold on to that, that somehow the law is something to be feared. Maybe that's where the real problem is. And Paul's going to get us to that. To the degree that, that then we do that, there's a second wrongful use of the law, which Paul here is referencing. If you read his, his other uh, epistles that Timothy helped him write, particularly, he says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. Now, this is interesting. You're tempted to read this and extract it from the, the Christian story or the, the whole story, starting from Adam all the way through into Revelations. And if you were to do that, this little nice convenient proof text, you would think that he's limiting the use of the law here. Well, it's to only the bad people. Now, who's bad? Well, that depends. You know, the bad people that break the laws like the Pharisees would talk about, outwardly only. But if you include in this the bad people, the bad people that Paul describes at great length in chapter 3 of, of, of uh, Romans, where he says none are good, not even one. All have mouths like an open grave. And he goes on to describe that, that what we call the universality of sin, total depravity. There's just no one out there, not even one. Something went horribly wrong somewhere, didn't it? These who God made beautifully and fearfully in the image of himself, putting on to earth, tagging them with made in the image of God, that is vocationally to image the holiness and the beauty and the love of God in a revelatory way in this world. Those who've been made like that, now the conclusion of Paul is, are utterly sinful. Such that he says, and I don't think he means it in hyperbole, though it might be, I don't know, but even their righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. So if you understand what Paul's saying here, he's not saying, well, you know, the only purpose of the law is to restrain evil. No, this word that he uses is very interesting. Understanding that the law is not laid down for the just. What is he talking about there? That's an interesting use. See, if you read Paul, I think you'd know, and certainly Timothy did. He means those who are justified, those who are right with God, those who are restored to God fully. It's written for us sinners, he says. And the way these guys have been using this law was not at all good news for sinners. And here is that issue I just raised for you. Did you hear it earlier? There's something in us that is a, there's a bias in us that is afraid that the law is going to inhibit our life. It's going to constrain our flourishing. These are a people who have not yet fully been restored, you would say, to the law, right? And unfortunately, there are many who might even be justified by grace through faith alone, sitting in this room, but who are still not reconciled fully to the law in the way in which we approach it. And so Paul wants us, secondly, the problem with the false prophets 
is that they failed to recognize the purpose of the law within the greater story of redemption. There's an end game here. And it's nicely summarized in, a, in our confession, where in chapter 20 he's talking about freedom of conscience and liberty of conscience. And he talks about how we've been set free from the fear of the law that would condemn us. That's one of the liberties that we're supposed to experience as Christians, being set free from the condemnation of the law. And that's true. Check it off. But then he goes on to say this. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin that is no longer relating to God fearfully and guiltfully and shamefully. So restoring us to God, setting us free from the freedom of the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law. What was the curse of the moral law? Well, Paul's going to explain in Romans and elsewhere that the curse of the moral law was not that the law itself cursed you. It's the law exposed ourselves that is in fact cursed. Let me say that again. The law itself doesn't curse you, but the law exposes what it is about us that is in fact cursed. It goes on. It says, the condemning wrath, the curse of the moral law, and their being delivered from the present evil world. Now we're talking about the law doing something else that you're kind of thinking, hmm, I like this. Being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of the affections, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, all of that we are set free from because of the gospel but not in spite of the law. You hear me? But in, because of the law, we're being set free of it. And so he goes on to say, and also then in their free access to God and their yielding obedience to him. So did you see that cycle? If you look at the story of redemption, you see right there three uses of the law, not separated from each other, but in a way that relates us back to God and ultimate freedom. Now, is that going on in your brain right now? Oh, how I love thy law. I just love those rules. Because it sets me free. Okay, I know. Not only was the psalmist smoking, so was the pastor. Well, let me try to explain that just a little bit more. What does it mean, this end game? There's a passage. You can turn to it if you want. If not, just read it. I'm going to read it. But there's a short, pithy passage in Romans 7, verse 5 and following, that I think perfectly illustrates these three uses of the law and the way in which they work together to bring you to ultimate salvation. And that's exactly what Paul means when he says a lawful use of the law. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Use one. But now we are released from the curse of the law, having died to that which held us captive. Notice the curse of the law, not the law. The curse that the law revealed, that we had. If we hadn't revealed it, we would know we had it, and we'd all be dying again. 
by faith in Christ. So that we serve now the law and God in a new way of the spirit and not by the way of the, quote, written code. What's a written code? It's interesting he didn't say law here. He's been talking about law. It's kind of a bastardization of the, of the law and the wrong use of the law that he's referring to here. So three uses of the law. Let me make that very, very clear to you. The first use of the law in this trajectory or, or storyline that's in your life as well as in redemptive history, uh-oh, I'm getting some weird things going on over there. Somebody, it's right over there. Someone just touched it, I think. Yep. There we go. Here it comes. Um, the first use of the law is to show us what is good and what God does use as the standard of evaluating our lives. That's it. To show us what is good, and in spite of popularity, in spite of what you've marginalized or not, to expose to us what God is by his holiness and how that holiness is used to, to judge or evaluate, if you will, our image purpose in this world, our imaging purpose in this world. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions are roused by the law. That is exposed in order in a way that would therefore bear fruit and show how that really exposes us and what we do as resulting in our death. That's what it says. Let me show you, explain it. Let's take, say, the Ten Commandments in Paul and their instruction of what not to do. Of course, Christ tells us that beneath every commandment, like a title of a chapter, is a whole bunch of, of implications for that. Internally, it includes not just the what nots to do, but what, in contrast, you would do in love. It includes what our motivations are for what we do and all of that. So it exposes all of this. Now, the purpose of God's law can be found in many places in Scripture, but remember, we're not talking about certain laws that had their typological or foreshadowing purpose in revealing Christ, like certain dietary codes in the New Test- Old Testament and holy days, etc. Mostly here we're talking about the moral law. And these kind of laws we, we know were purposed in order to reveal to us what is right and wrong. So you say to your child, for his or her good, don't put that in your mouth. Okay? And the child sees that, of course, like, you just took away something that's really gratifying to me. Right? And that's where we're left so far. The law intended to restrain evil and to establish what is good, which is a a use of this law. But then, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to this person or this kid that you told not to put in his mouth? I mean, how many minutes? No, maybe seconds, but maybe a day will it be till you turn the corner and look at him in the room, and there it is, the child playing with the toy that's sitting in his mouth. Now, what's going to happen at first is you're going to say, well, she's just a cute little baby, developmentally not quite capable of these things. It's cute. A couple more years, you're going to say, and they're going through this adolescence thing. They're hormonally all whacked out. They can't help themselves. You know, frontal lobe, not there. Left, right, they got a little body me over here, but they got these great 
you know, rational machines going on right either side that can rationalize it all. So you check it off if you have a sense of humor like I didn't always, right, kids? But but you check it off and you say, okay, that's that's the lobotomy effect, and I got to deal with that. But then somewhere, somewhere down the line, it begins to become evident, even to that child. There is something deep, deep within us that just doesn't want anything external lording our lives, not even God, who have rejected, actually, God as God of life, God of flourishing, God of happiness, because we've trans, we've replaced him with something else, an idol that is the God of happiness and the God of whatever it is. And see, that's what Paul says here, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, the curse of the law, having died to that which held us captive. And he's explaining that because he just said that that happens by faith in Christ. So there's the first use of the law, which is to reveal to us our, uh, uh, you know, is to tell us how to live our life. There's a second use of the law, which is to reveal our sin. That which keeps us from flourishing in our relationship with God. And at first it's just a a law that exposes sins, small s with many, many, many types. But eventually what Paul is talking about is how this is going to exasperate us. We're going to discern that there's something deep within us that's really bad. And we're going to give up hope that we can ever keep the law. Have you come to that place in your life? It can come in so many different ways. Oftentimes it comes by us trying to please people. We make people our idol. Sometimes it's because we try to please this internal ambition that I have. And you keep doing it, you keep doing it, you keep doing it, but it never brings us flourishing. We get what we thought would just settle everything and we get it and we're left empty again. Something's missing. And so do you see the first use of the law, which is to tell us how to live and to restrain evil, if you will. Second use of the law, which is to humble us to the point where one day we cry out, God, something's wrong with me, deep in my soul. Because the very things I want to do, which Paul will say here just in chapter 7, I can't seem to do. Try as I much to say, I will never raise my voice again. I raise my voice again. Try as I much to say, I will never feel those thoughts for that person. And I find myself struggling day day after for those thoughts. I can't undo it. And you realize one day what Paul says, that we are utterly helpless to save ourselves by our keeping the law. Because something's wrong with us, not the law, us, that God's got to fix. And you go to God and you cry out mercy and you say to him something like, God, save me. You see, so there's the second use. First is that it reveals our, the first is that it tells us how to live our life. The second is that directs us to Jesus Christ 
as the law-keeping substitute to be restored to God and now as the source of the very power by the Holy Spirit that will begin a new creation in my heart. I need something supernatural. Do you feel that right now in your life? Have you been struggling with? Think about it. What have you been struggling with? What is this relationship conflict going on that's probably exposing something about yourself? What is this unsatisfaction or discontentment in your life that's exposing something wrong about yourself? Listen to the word here. Those who are the flesh cannot please God. Following your passions, that is your emotions of the fleshly desire to indulge or even to abstain in that which you shouldn't abstain from. Is what he's talking about there. Notice what Christ would say. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. See, the law is not the problem, but to fulfill it. That is to do something that you couldn't do and enable you to do it as well. First, by restoring you to God, justifying you by grace through faith, he becoming the substitute standard by which you become judged by God your Father where God your Father now sees Christ's righteousness credited to your account. He looks at your little righteousness bank account and he says, you got all they need right there. It's all been deposited by Jesus Christ. When you just say, mercy. It's that simple. Mercy. Give me Christ's righteousness. I can't give it anymore. If God, if you go to heaven today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? There is only one correct answer. There's nothing I can possibly think of that should get me to heaven when it comes right down to it. I never got this image of God resolved in my own works. So I beg your mercy, and I beg your mercy that you gave us in Jesus Christ, and I accept by faith alone. And Father just smiles and says, come on in. That's it. Good news. One of you sitting in this room once told me when you were getting saved, Pastor, that's just too good to be true. One of you said that. You know you are. And I don't know what else to say, but yep, that's it. (laughs) It's just really too good to be true. So that's the second use of the law. Paul says it this way, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from your working the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Not contrary to the law, it's their intent to get you to this place of humbling you and exasperating you to the point where you cry out mercy. The righteousness God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there's no distinction out there, he says. For all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now this is the passage that Martin Luther read that saved his life. This is his conversion story right here. The great reformer. And then that then there's a third use of the law. The third use of the law is, is here exposed very clearly. Now that we're justified, now that we've been restored to God, now we're beginning to, to have a different view about authority in our life. Now we begin to accept that this office of Father is something that is always going to be revealed through his Love for us. It's, it's not anti-life. He's the father of life. We begin to get restored to God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son, and now in the power of the Spirit, 
We've given a new nature in our lives, and by that new nature, we're now capable of re-looking or reviewing the law again, and, and instead of our minds being driven, our rationality being driven by the passions and, and desires and the emotional immediate gratifications of the flesh, all of a sudden we are given the capacity to step back. If just more and more, doesn't happen immediately, but more and more we get the capacity to, and the way it feels is just stepping back from your passions for a minute and asking the question, is it possible that there's a way that God's command to do this and not to do this could truly in the long term Bless my life. Not just now, but in the next life as well. But not just in the next life as well. Even now, too. I mean, is it possible that God could tell me to do something that's going to lose my job? Is it possible that God could tell me something that's make me less popular and not more popular? Is it possible that he could tell me something that's going to... And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Because there may be a world living according to another law under another Lord that has control over the systems, if you will. It won't won't elevate you if you don't sell your soul to that corporation or that business or that school or that professor or that image of life or whatever it is you're talking about. So yeah, but then, but that's when you have to really think, but hold it, God. But does that advance in whatever we're talking about, popularity, is that really going to be my happiness? Is there? Can I possibly conceive of, of a possibility that maybe he's setting me free from the fear of that which holds me bondage, that idol? And now I'm just floating to the point where you can say something like Paul said, there's nothing that man can do to me. Because God's taking away all fear of everything. For me to live as Christ, die as gain. I mean, think about that. I wish I could get to that place. Don't you? What would life feel and be like like that? So you just envision it, this idea that the law is a grace. Paul talks about that in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what is he talking about? training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's a grace if God's law will help us to denounce our worldly passions. Not a hindrance to give us self-control and upright and godly lives in the present age. That's a grace. Sin corrupts and corrodes life. You know, the night of drinking and getting drunk, and I've been there and done that, felt great, but when it incapacitated me the next day to where I played a very horrible game for my team in high school on Saturday in a way that we lost the game, possibly because of the way I had drunk the night before, I saw another reality to that sin of drunkenness, you see. And so here we have it. You know, you can either relate to the law one of four ways. You can relate to it as in a moralism way, 
which actually is a very high view of the law, but a very low view of grace. We've, we've separated. It's law versus grace. That is that we're law obeying, but we're also law relying in terms of how we're right with God and ourselves. Works righteousness. You're going to feel guilty all the time. People are too big and God is too small. You're always going to be trying to please people because those people represent the tradition of the law that you want to please. Afraid of religion and religious topics. If you come to church, you'd like to keep your distance just a little bit. You've got to come to church because you're moralistic. But you don't want to really get too close in there because it might get a little messy when it gets exposing. You know what I mean? So you're finding the furthest distance you can from the center of the church. And a church will stay in the margins, won't get too close to the center because it will make me feel guilty if they do. You see, that's a high view of law, low view of grace. We, we, there's still intention. The Pharisee is a moralist who goes one step further. It's a, it's a high view of the law, but reducing the law to the things that instead of condemning myself, I just get, get, get to condemn everybody else that makes me feel a little more righteous. But it's really the same thing as a moralist. Then there's the hedonist. The hedonist is someone that says, has just gone ahead and said, screw it. Hi, grace. Oh, I'm all about grace. Let's always talk about grace and talk about that in the church, etc., which we should, by the way. I'm not backing down on that. But there's still an attention of grace equals against law. That's the hedonist. True grace in this person's mind is anti-law. They don't have that right use of the law, as I told you about. The three uses and how they work together to save you fully. This person is going to be grace-centered without righteousness, post-Christendom sometimes. This is usually the person that's grown up in the youth group and and finally said enough already. (laughs) And they just split. And all and on it goes. Of course, we're high gospel. That's what we want to be, right? That's what Paul talks about. High gospel is not... Law versus gospel. High gospel is high law, high grace. That is law obeying, but not law relying. Law obeying, it is my ambition to keep the law because I see the law as a grace of God in all three uses. Yes, it convicts me of my sin. I mean, it tells me how to live my life better. Two, it convicts me of my sin and leads me to Jesus Christ. Three, I'm restored now to the law that I might now as a Christian grow in grace by keeping the law. That's the third use of the law. This person is not afraid of God, has been restored to the law because now the law doesn't condemn me because I'm righteous in Christ, I'm justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ. When I do fail the law, this person, high gospel, high grace, they're not afraid to talk about it. They're not afraid to tell you about it. They're not afraid to confess their sins one to another because they're no longer feeling God's condemnation and by God, I'm not going to feel yours, therefore. (laughs) A high gospel person can talk a lot about the law in both the ways that they are failing it but also the ways they're seeking to obey it. Would you please pray for me? But all without the fear of condemnation. That's high gospel, high grace. Well, let me end with this. I'm going to talk especially to the baptized children in this room. I want you to hear this, kids. You know, and and I think it's applicable to all of us. The question I want to ask is very simple. 
What does this sermon say about what it means to be a Christian? Now, I'm going to explain that question a little differently for you. What does it mean, how does this relate to when you should confirm your personal and saving faith in Jesus Christ as to be admitted to the Lord's table? Okay, that's the question I'm asking if you're a baptized child in this room. And anybody that wants to be a Christian, I guess you could say as well. When should you confirm your personal and saving faith in Jesus Christ as to be admitted to the Lord's Supper? Well, notice carefully what I just said and didn't say. I didn't say, when should you join the church? Let that sink in. You're already a member. You're already presumed to be long to Jesus Christ. And your parents are raising you like that. You're already a member. We don't say to you, obey this uh, in order for one day to you to become a Christian. Parents will say, one day you're going to become a Christian. Parents wouldn't say that, right? I know there's a parent going, I might have said that. No, that's not what you're saying. The question is, when should you confirm your personal saving faith in Jesus Christ? I didn't say then, profess your faith in Christ. I didn't say, when are you going to profess your faith in Christ one day? I know, kids, every one of you, almost. And I think all of you are already saying, if I were to ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? You'd say, yes, I do. I've been saying that since I was a little kid and had no reason to doubt it. My mom and dad told me so. And that's perfectly legit. Perfectly legit. Good. Your parents are doing something good. Your church is doing something good. And you believe it. And that's good. And presumably we we could even say, you're a Christian. What did I say? I didn't say, when are you going to join the church? You already are. I didn't say, when are you going to profess your faith? You're probably doing it already. I said, when are you going to confirm your personal and saving faith? That is to discover the certainty of it for your, in a way that will give you an assurance has been tested or examined in a manner that we can resolve this issue so that you don't become the ex-youth group junkie who's the moralist in 10 years or the Pharisee that finally gets exasperated because they're mixed up about all this, and they now become the most self-righteous condemning of the world that's ever lived. Or maybe you just go the whole way to say, screw it all, I'm a hedonist. It all starts with assurance. You don't get that assurance situated, it creates huge problems in your life, baptized child. And we want that for you. And so I ask again, When should you confirm your personal and saving faith in Jesus Christ as to be admitted to this Lord's Supper? And very simply, if you follow the sermon, we're going to say it this way. We're going to say, first of all, you can confirm your faith when by a right use of the law, you have not only been convicted about your sins, but you've discovered your ultimate sin. Yes, I know I shouldn't disobey my dad. But somewhere along the lines, you keep trying, you keep trying, and your dad and you are just not working it out. Or maybe it's waiting, you get into school, and you just keep doing this thing that you shouldn't do. And you keep trying, and you keep trying, and you're beginning to say, something's wrong here, something's wrong. I keep screwing up. I just keep screwing up. It's a hard thing for a parent to see a kid do, I know. 
But there they are, struggling and feeling broken. So that's the first question. Have you come to that place where you've not only discovered your sins, but your ultimate sin, that you reject God, and that's something in you, in your heart, to do? Secondly, then, you should confirm your faith when by a right use of the law, you, as through self-examination, have realized your need for a Savior, that you cannot save yourself from the curse of sin and death, but that you have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who can. And you're ready now to say, I give you my life. I give you my life. Take it. All of it. That's my intention. You're willing to say that. You're willing to see and have enough knowledge to know that Jesus on the cross, I should discern in that cross, that body hanging on a cross, that somehow in this transaction, you, you don't have to understand all the transaction, but somehow in this transaction, when I say I believe in Jesus Christ and give him my life for the forgiveness of my sins, that now your ultimate sin of rejecting God is put on that body on the cross as your substitute so that he suffers the curse so that you don't have to suffer it. That's all you got to know. That's what you assent to that you now are receiving because you've been humbled to the point where you will. That's second. Third, then you should confirm your faith when by the right use of the law is through self-examination, you are actually now restored to the law as your friend versus your condemner. And you're able to say that to the best of my ability now, there's nothing in my life off limits to God because I know that everything God would tell me and everything God would teach me is good and loving. Now, if you're listening, in other words, I will, to the best of my ability, by God's grace, endeavor to follow Christ. First was, do you know yourself to be a sinner? Justly condemned. That word justly always got me. It's legit that God would have to put his son to death on the cross. It was legit. There was something so bad about what I've done, and it wasn't just because I wanted a, a, a I don't know, an iPhone. Something deep that warranted the cruel death of Jesus Christ. I now receive him as my Savior. I give him my life. And I now endeavor to the best of my ability to be restored to God's law one day at a time, more and more. And every time now I violate the law, because you will, you go back to step one. And you, for, ask your, God, you, you confess your sin. You receive Jesus Christ. And you now endeavor by God's grace working in you to do better. That's it. And you persevere till the end in doing that pattern over and over and over again. But when you're ready to enter into that pattern, you're ready to be admitted to this Lord's Supper. And all who would want to become Christians here today, I pray that you will truly listen to what Paul said. The law is good. And it can save you. And a rightful use of it. Amen.